Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and did not necessarily represent those of AMC Networks and its employees. There was so much blood and so much movement in the blood that those people were struggling for some time before they ended up dying. But they both had catastrophic, life-ending stab wounds. There wasn't much fight after that. You can't appreciate it till you see the like the autopsy pictures and that kind of stuff. Oh. It's just, it's you know, it's you went there to kill somebody, you kill them and walk away. There's a whole lot going on in that crime scene. I cannot imagine just just the overview of that thing was just. God, this is going to take a week, a month. It's not something you can walk in and do in three or four hours. How does this crime and this crime scene compare to other homicides that you've seen in your career? Uh, it was, it was, it, it didn't compare. Hmm. I mean, it was not even in the same, you know, it was a horrific crime scene. Hmm. That's retired investigator Richard Hudson. He's talking about a double homicide that happened in 1985 in Bedford County, Virginia. When I first started looking into this case, never in a million years did I expect that what I would find would cut so close to the bone. It was a brutal knife killing in a small town. The victims were found dead in their home, an isolated cottage. The suspects were two young lovers. One of them was a foreign exchange student at the local university. There was a media spectacle with perverse satanic and sexual overtones and pressure on the local authorities to solve the case immediately. She was the femme fatale. He was her love slave. Sound familiar? Like my trial two decades later, the trial for these murders made international headlines, one of the first in Virginia's history to be broadcast on national television. The victims were well-off prominent socialites, They were stabbed many times, their throats slit to the bone. The defendants were unlikely, strange even. The first was the victim's own daughter, a beautiful and aloof young woman who grew up in foreign boarding schools. And the second was her boyfriend, the son of a German diplomat with oversized nerd glasses and a dorky haircut. She pled guilty to accessory before the fact, claiming her boyfriend, madly in love with her, carried out the murder for her sake. He, in turn, accused her of the murders, but he was convicted, in large part due to her testimony. They've both been in prison for the past 33 years.
crime writers have described them as golden youths consumed by hatred and perverse fantasies, caught in a tangled web of dark secrets and deadly obsession. They call him an enamored puppet, a perfect weapon, and the beast of Bedford. She is cast as Lady Macbeth, a master manipulator, a bewitching enchantress. The six-part docuseries, Killing for Love, streaming on Sundance Now, paints a more human picture, one I'm much more interested in. Because when I hear these descriptions, alarm bells go off. Having been accused of being a femme fatale, I can relate to the daughter. Having shouted my own innocence on deaf ears, I can relate to the boyfriend. It's an uncomfortable position to be in, knowing one of them is likely the murderer. This is the truth about true crime. I'm Amanda Knox. This season, I'm looking into a case that has haunting and almost unbelievable echoes of my own. The method and the brutality of the killing, the police screw-ups, the young lovers as suspects, the media spectacle, the disputed alibis, the questionable forensics. It all gave me deja vu. But more than anything, what hit me was how quick people were to judge the central figures in this case, to shove them into archetypes, and how righteous everyone felt when they were locked away. From the start, I knew the double homicide of Derek and Nancy Hasem was a lot more complicated than the state of Virginia would have you believe. What I learned shocked me, angered me, and moved me in ways I wasn't ready for. Welcome to season three. For a closer look at Jens Sering's case, check out the six-part docuseries, Killing for Love, on Sundance Now. Download the app, or visit SundanceNow.com and enter promo code TRUTH to sign up for a free 14-day trial. Like little papers in this huge case. Derek and Nancy Hasem were respected Virginian elites. Derek was a former steel executive from South Africa. Nancy was a descendant of the Astor family and a painter. They both had adult children from previous marriages and had settled down in a small cottage in Nancy's hometown in Bedford County, Virginia for their retirement. They played weekly bridge games with the neighbors. They weren't the kind of people anyone expects to find murdered. It was their youngest and one shared daughter, Elizabeth, who first sprung the chain of events that set the case into motion. On the morning of April 3rd, 1985, she called Nancy's friend and neighbor, Annie Massey, told her she hadn't been able to get in touch with her parents all week and asked Annie to check in on them. Annie, who had a spare key to the Hasem's cottage, drove over, opened the door, and laid eyes on the nightmare within. To walk into the front door, because of course Mr. Hasten was lying to the left, right there just inside the living room, out of the dining room. Mm-hmm. He was lying on his back across the doorway. And it's very obvious, then you take a left from the living room going into the dining room is where it all occurred. There was a lot of blood smeared all over the floor there. Then you go through the dining room and into the kitchen, and that's where Miss Hasten was lying. That was Chuck Reed, 
one of the original detectives, who examined the crime scene personally. The scene in the Hasem's cottage was something beyond the shock of blood. It was clear from the start that whoever had done this had meant it, and had done it not as a means to some other end, robbery, say, but for its own sake. The first thing hit me, and that's what I've, I've told people when they asked me, the first thing hit me was, you know, what some type of gang came in here and did this. And mm. I never once, every human thought about the fact of just one person going out and doing that kind of damage to two mm. people and come out unscathed mm. either way. It, it appears if somebody wanted to try to decapitate them, just want to be truthful about it, their throats were cut back to the neck bone. Uh, and I think he was stabbed 30-some times, and she was stabbed five or six in the body area. It was somewhat of a shock, even though I'd worked four other murder cases prior to that. It's, it, it was nothing like this. I do not envy your job, honestly. That sounds really rough. Again, it never dawned on me. I'm just all right, just one person going and doing something like that. From everything I've read, this was a difficult crime scene to process. One lab technician estimated that 90% of the floor surface of the living room, kitchen, and dining room was covered in blood. The investigators collected samples from 52 places and found the presence of all four blood types. There was no sign of a break-in, nothing stolen, and the dinner table was set for three. Derek and Nancy both had a blood alcohol content of 0.22. To put that in context, 0.1 is the legal limit in Virginia, and 0.3 can be fatal. There was a liquor bottle present, with fingerprints not belonging to Derek or Nancy. This wealth of forensic evidence created many questions, but it also suggested something disturbing. Derek and Nancy were likely butchered by someone they knew and trusted. Can you walk me through the investigation, at least as far as you were a part of it? Well, we got the call. It was a Wednesday afternoon. Um, and once we got over there, you know, like I said, we walked in and what I told you earlier basically is what we found. And at that, at that point, the sheriff, the local sheriff here, immediately called in what we had to call the regional homicide squad. For months, the investigators had few clues about who the murderer or murderers could be. While they waited for the over 200 pieces of physical evidence to be analyzed, they interviewed the Hasem's family, friends, neighbors, and acquaintances. Desperate, they researched satanic cults, reached out to the FBI for help creating a profile of the killer, and even met with a psychic. Crazy, right? But my prosecutor did that too. One person the investigators had their eye on was a young woman named Margaret Louise, who had been affianced to and then spurned by one of Derek's sons from a previous marriage, and who had once been committed to a mental hospital for severe psychological problems. But that suspicion petered out when Margaret Louise's foot impressions didn't match any of the footprints left at the crime scene. And that lasted about, about a month and a half or two months. And then the first part of June, the case was turned over to myself and Ricky Gardner. Mm-hmm. Just for me and him. Investigators Chuck Reed and Ricky Gardner were peers. Both were young, in their early 30s. 
Yeah, what was your working relationship with Detective Ricky Gardner? It was, it was great. I mean, Ricky was young. He hadn't been in investigations, I don't think, about six months. That was his first murder case, so I can imagine what kind of shock it was to him, much less to us experienced guys. But we worked fine together, and thats I guess that's what shocked me down the road here in the last three years. While I was on Paul After Paul. dismissing Margaret Louise, detectives Reed and Gardner then hovered over two people. The Hasem's daughter... Elizabeth, and her boyfriend Jens, because their alibi didn't quite add up. Though they worked the case together, in the last three decades, they've come to view it very differently. Ricky Gardner is convinced that Jens is guilty. Chuck Reed is just as convinced that Jens is innocent. I reached out to both of them, but only Chuck agreed to talk. Ricky Gardner declined, citing an ongoing investigation related to the case. How did you and Detective Gardner come to suspect Elizabeth and eventually Jens? Naturally, they were both suspects. The bottom line is, anybody will tell you as an investigator, when you go to a crime scene, everybody's a suspect except for yourself because you knew where you were at. (laughs) But, you know, so you start eliminating people. And you start with the family, with the closest people, and you start eliminating. When Elizabeth was first questioned, The investigators were looking for any information about her parents, what her relationship with them was like, who might want to harm them, and Elizabeth led them on a long, wandering tale that included her father having enemies in Canada, her own troubles in boarding school, a few months when she ran off to Europe with a friend, and she even admitted to her own use of heroin. The detectives found her stuck up and strange, like there was something off about her. But however strange she was, she seemed to have a solid alibi for the entire weekend of the murder. She had rented a car in Charlottesville and had driven to D.C. with her boyfriend, Jens, where they spent the weekend. I guess the, the big thing was there, it got on down to closer to the end or the middle part of it maybe, and the mileage on the vehicle, the rental car. Hmm. Uh, I'm... Well, as I remember, it's like 429 extra miles on the car that shouldn't have been with mm. a trip from Charlottesville to, to Washington, D.C. and back to Charlottesville. Mm-hmm. They were saying they got lost. And it's kind of hard to get lost when you're going up straight from Charlottesville to Washington, D.C. on one route, which is Route 29. This is a complicated but elegant piece of detective work Chuck is talking about. That small detail, the rental car, hit the detectives a few days after questioning Elizabeth, and they went down to the National Rental Car Center to look at the records. Elizabeth had indeed rented a car that entire weekend, but the total mileage of the car during the rental period was 669 miles. Far too many miles to drive from Charlottesville to D.C. and back, about a 230-mile round trip. When questioned about this, Elizabeth said they'd gotten lost, but the detectives weren't buying a 400-mile accidental detour. They did the math, and it turned out that driving from Charlottesville to D.C., then back to Lynchburg, where the Hasems lived, then back to D.C., then back to Charlottesville, that route was pretty damn close to 669 miles. The detectives' eyes were now solidly on Elizabeth. And Jens? He only came into the picture because he was Elizabeth's alibi. The mileage in the rental car was a clue. 
a significant clue, but circumstantial at best. They needed something more concrete, so they asked Jens to talk and to submit fingerprints, footprints, and a blood sample. And I told him that day, I said, look, Jens, I said, I'm going to tell you now, I said, I'm 99% sure you're innocent and you're not guilty of this, but there's that 1%. And I said, if you can just take care of that 1%, which I the meaning of the cooperating, giving us the fingerprints and all this, I said, that's all I'm looking for. Hmm. Ricky was a little harder on him than what I was. Hmm. Did you really only suspect him 1%? Yeah. When that 18-year-old kid walked in my office, the first thing hit me was, there's no way. I just can't see this. And with all due respect to Yans, I mean, he was just just a nerdy-looking, big, thick glasses, just rosy-cheeked 18-year-old kid. I'm thinking to myself, the way this crime scene was, and the way these people ended up in two different rooms and, and all this, I said, I just, my gut feeling just tells me that I just don't think this boy was there and physically involved in actually killing Mr. and Ms. Hazen. They couldn't force Jens to submit his fingerprints and blood, as they were very far from having probable cause to arrest either him or Elizabeth. We had no physical evidence. I mean, that's, that was the whole problem. Jens said he'd think about it. He was busy with exams that week. But then, before the detectives realized it, Elizabeth and Jens had hopped on separate planes out of the country. That alone would make anyone, myself included, question their innocence. Now to say he's actually innocent? No, I've never said he was innocent to him or either one, and I think Jens will tell you that. I think he had knowledge of it, and it was after the fact. Elizabeth and Jens went first to Thailand, where they acquired false identification. And over the course of a few months, they eventually wound up in London, where they survived by passing fraudulent checks at department stores. I won't go into all the details of the chase. For that, check out the six-part docuseries, Killing for Love, streaming on Sundance now. Long story short, they eventually got caught by London authorities. And when the detectives searched their apartment, they found diaries in which Elizabeth daydreamed about her parents' death, fantasies Jens indulged in with her in letters, and mentions of our little nasty back in Virginia. So the London authorities reached out to Virginia. Detective Ricky Gardner and prosecutor James Updike flew out to London to interrogate the young lovers. They finally had a motive. The investigator's theory at this point was that Elizabeth hated her parents. Well. It's very obvious whoever did it got off on it because that was a, such a hate crime. I mean, that was up close and personal. Hmm. That crime was. It was obvious whoever got a hold of those people hated them. As for Jens, they hypothesized that the Hasems disapproved of Jens and that Elizabeth used her feminine wiles, her sexual and intimate dominance, to convince him to murder her parents. I'm highly skeptical of these kind of witch power explanations. After all, that's what my prosecutor said about me, that I had somehow used my vagina powers to coerce my boyfriend and a total stranger to rape my roommate for me. And as we'll see, there's plenty of reason to doubt this theory. Now, if the blood-soaked crime scene, unassuming suspects, and international chase weren't enough to make this case one of the most surreal, here comes one of the strangest parts of the story. 
The investigators found two sets of distinct footprints at the crime scene. Two blood types, B and O, that didn't belong to Derek or Nancy, but did belong to Elizabeth and Jens. They had two liars, two runaways, and two voices in those diaries and letters, fantasizing about Derek and Nancy meeting an untimely end. So why didn't they suspect that Elizabeth and Jens had committed these murders together? The simple answer is, Elizabeth and Jens couldn't have committed the murders together. They had an alibi, or at least one of them did. Jens and Elizabeth eventually claimed the same alibi for themselves, each saying they stayed in DC, saw some movies, ordered room service, while the other left in the rental car to go kill the Haysoms. Well, I've been sheriff for a little over 11 years, but I was an investigator and a supervisor with the Charlottesville, Virginia Police Department for 30 years. And before that, I was a probation officer. And before that, I worked in a jail. And, and when I was in college, worked in a halfway house. And I asked Chip Harding about it, an investigator hired years later by Jens's defense to look into the case. Elizabeth says that Jens left and was going to drive down to Bedford and talk to her parents. And he came back late that or early the next morning and found her walking on the sidewalk outside a movie theater in Alexandra. And she looked in the rental car and he was wearing nothing but a white sheet covered in blood from head to toe. Jens insists the opposite is true. He and Elizabeth drove to D.C. for a romantic weekend. When they arrived, Elizabeth revealed an ulterior motive. She had to pick up some drugs and deliver them back to her dealer in Charlottesville. And she needed Jens to remain in D.C. to provide her an alibi in case anyone ever found out. She left in the rental car. And when she returned in the middle of the night, she confessed to him that she'd killed her parents. That's what Jens says. So who's to be believed? Let's assume Elizabeth's story is true. Jens killed the Haysoms and returned wearing a sheet covered in blood. Now that's kind of an incredible scene to think that you'd murder someone or a couple of people and drive three or four hours like that knowing you could be stopped. The Bedford Sheriff's Office guys luminol that vehicle and luminol will detect blood. And I've had a lot of murder cases I've worked on where people have used bleach and various other items to try to get blood out of a trunk of car. We've always had success with the luminol giving us indications of blood. Well, they said there was no indication of blood in the car. Well, Elizabeth said there was no blood in the, left in the car because... Jens instructed her to clean it with Coca-Cola, so she poured Coca-Cola in there and scrubbed it all out, which is highly improbable. <laughs> well, when the car was turned in the following day, and I don't mean a week later, but the very next day, there was actual testimony in the trial from the person receiving the rental vehicle that it was inspected and it was in perfect condition. So then you move to the hotel bill. Elizabeth said that she ordered... Uh, a bottle of alcohol to drink and several food items while Jens was away. Well, I've gone back and looked at the hotel bill and the bill was far less than what she claimed she ordered. So it's not consistent. And Jens said what he ordered and it's consistent. Mm. She said she paid for it 
with Yenza's father's credit card and forged his name. And the hotel said, that's not the way we do business. It was charged to the room. It was all paid, you know, when they checked out. Then you look at movie tickets. Elizabeth said she went to a couple movies and bought the tickets at, I forget the exact hour, but it was earlier in the day, like noon or one o'clock. Well, after Yenza's trial, uh, his attorneys, it was way too late then, got in touch with the movie theater. And they said that we don't time stamp our tickets, but we do have a chronological order number on the tickets. And based on the numbers on the tickets that were found in Yenza's room, it was highly unlikely they were sold before 6 o'clock that evening. So the rental car doesn't show evidence for Elizabeth's claims, either blood or Coca-Cola. The hotel room service bill was paid for with Yenza's father's card and signed with Yenza's signature. And he knew the movie times accurately, while Elizabeth did not. What's more, the movie ticket stubs were later found in Yenza's dorm room. These details certainly suggest that he has a better claim to the DC alibi than she does. There's a lot more we could dig into here, about their alibis, their testimony, and their demeanor in court, the entries from their diaries, and the various lies each of them told to the investigators. But we know a lot more now than investigators did in 1985. And the view from today puts a lot of this behavioral evidence into question. What a crime scene tells you depends on how you interpret the evidence. What you read is meaningful. Even back then, there were some interpretations that were a stretch or outright junk. But this case has been going on forever, 33 years. Elizabeth has been serving her time for accessory before the fact, which she pled guilty to. And Jens has been proclaiming his innocence nonstop, moving through appeal after appeal. And throughout all those appeals and denied parole hearings, his defense team has brought in other investigators to re-examine the evidence. You've already met Chip Harding. I also sat down with Sergeant Richard Hudson, who you heard at the beginning of this episode. He's a retired detective from Charlottesville who spent 250 hours examining the evidence from the perspective of today, without the pressure that Chuck Reed and Ricky Gardner were under to deliver a suspect and a conviction. I worked uh, for the Charlottesville Police Department for 27 years. And um, 13 of those years, I was a detective. And then five more years, I was the supervisor of the investigative work group. So I was responsible for all of the homicide investigations. And in Charlottesville, that varies from one or two to six or seven. I probably did, oh, in my career, either supervising the investigation or conducting the investigation, definitely upwards of 100 death investigations and probably 30 or 40 homicide investigations. Wow. Uh, I, I kind of need to like stop and appreciate that for a second. You are extremely familiar with death. Oh, yeah. Yep. All varieties of it. So what does he make of the Haysom murders? It was so bizarre back in 1985 that things need to make sense. None of that ever made sense. 
crimes of passion don't always make sense. You know, you're given a bunch of pieces, which would be facts or evidence or whatever that might be. Mm -hmm. And you take all those pieces and you put them together and then you have a picture. Mm -hmm. And the picture shows you what happened. Mm -hmm. And if you can't find that picture, you can't make those pieces make sense. You just got to keep working. And mm-hmm. you don't just put the square peg in the round hole and keep going. It doesn't work that way. Mm. You're the perfect example of that. You said in Bedford, it, there was almost like a, a funneling or a, a tunneling effect that happened from the get-go. If you listen to what Chuck says, Jens and Elizabeth were never suspects. Mm. Until this diary stuff shows up in London. That was months and months later. I mean, if they were looking for Yen Suring and Elizabeth Hasem, Yen's was using his father's credit card. Mm-hmm. They should have found him in five minutes. Again, we come back to things need to make sense, mm-hmm. at least at some point. Mm-hmm. You know, so I mean, I'm not seeing some 18 year old kid that doesn't really have a dog in the fight other than the, the, the theory is that. Uh, Derek didn't like him, you know, didn't want him dating his daughter. You know know what I mean? So Mm -hmm. that doesn't make sense to me. I mean, you don't do that for for something like that. I mean, if you went there to, you know, if you went there to kill somebody, you kill them and walk away. You know Mm -hmm. know what I mean? So it looked like the crime scene was processed pretty well. However, they didn't use what they found there very well. Does that make sense? They didn't miss very much. Really? Mm-hmm. Uh, there are two or three things that look to me like they could have had some impact, but lab only does what you ask it to do. Mm-hmm. You follow that? Sure. So if they didn't ask the right question, they didn't get the right answer. Richard Hudson thinks Bedford County got it wrong because they weren't asking the right questions. But weren't they? Think back to the diary entries and letters talking about our little nasty. The fact that Elizabeth and Jens fled to Europe rather than submit Jens's fingerprints. The 400 mystery miles on the rental car. And the sheer personal brutality of the killings. It's hard not to let those facts hit you in the gut. These two are guilty. So how can we prove it? But that's not the right question especially not now. Decades later, the right question is, are we willing to challenge our convictions in light of new evidence? Are we willing to be wrong? Because out of reach of the investigators back in 1985, hiding in plain sight in the copious blood found at the crime scene was evidence that would turn this case on its head. In 2016, the blood was finally tested for DNA. DNA creates all these new questions. Hmm. So, and th- and now, not only will they won't answer it, they won't even look at it. Hmm. Won't even talk about it. So, that's, that's very troubling to me. Next time, on The Truth About True Crime, we'll look into the DNA and discover that the double homicide of Derek and Nancy Hasem isn't the only crime in this case. There's another crime here, and this one isn't just unsolved, it's still happening. In the meantime, be sure to check out the Sundance Now docuseries, Killing for Love, at sundancenow.com. And please subscribe, rate, review, and share the truth about true crime.